You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are a few highlights from this week's program. During that concert, I said, I want to be a part of this for the rest of my life. And I don't know what that means. At that time, I didn't know what I, whether I was going to be a singer or an arts administrator um, or a conductor. And I sort of spent the next five or six, seven years trying different things out through college. Um, But I knew this is what I wanted to do. It was a very powerful moment. It's it, There are many of those in the book, times when people say, how can you remember? And I'd say, how would you forget? You know, this was the first. We had not sat her down. We were not at a place of thinking that she was going to die, only that her condition was really very, very serious. But at that point, uh, we, were, we were still hopeful. So we hadn't used that word. For Leah Marie to go there. She was a very verbal, um, almost four-year-old, and um, it did take me by surprise that she went there instantly. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 300, airing for the first time on Sunday, June 18, 2017. Today's theme is From the Heart. We all have had experiences that push us to go beyond what we know in our daily lives. Today we speak with Dr. Emily Isaacson, the Artistic Director of the Oratorial Chorale and Main Chamber Ensemble, about her unique commitment to music and how she came to make her life's choices. We also explore ideas of grief in childhood with psychologist Dr. Mary Pluff, author of the memoir, I Know It In My Heart. Thank you for joining us. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is Dr. Emily Isaacson, who serves as the artistic director for the Oratorio Chorale and the Maine Chamber Ensemble, a symphonic chorus and professional orchestra in Maine. Last year, she launched the Portland Bach Festival with faculty from the Juilliard School. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. You've had um, a very interesting career for a Maine woman. (laughs) I mean, you're doing some things that I don't think as many people are doing who come out of Brunswick. Uh, I feel really lucky for the adventures I've gotten to take. I feel very lucky for um, for the opportunities. And I'm excited to be back doing it here. Well, tell me about... Um Tell me about why my music became important to you as a younger person, because obviously this is something you've been doing for quite a while. So um, I have a three and a half year old daughter now who, according to my parents, looks, talks and acts just like me. So I'm sort of getting a new uh, vantage point of viewing my own journey. Um, My daughter 
wants to perform everywhere. You turn on music and she's dancing. You say something funny and she's repeating it back as a play. And that was very much me. I was sort of captivated by art and music and theater and dance right from the get-go. Started doing Main State Music Theater productions when I was in fourth grade. Huge uh, debt of gratitude to Chuck Abbott, who was the director of Main State Music Theater at the time for teaching me not only about show business, but really about hard work and dedication and focus and being nine years old and working with adults. Um, And so I did a lot of Main State Music Theater and theater project acting um, until I was uh, about 12 or 13. And then I became an awkward, ugly teenager. And I lasted in that space for uh, maybe till 35. No, just kidding. (laughs) Um, for a good long time. And so the summer, there was a summer where I auditioned for all sorts of plays and I didn't get in because I wasn't cute anymore. I was too young to play an adult role and too old to play a cute kid role. And my mom said, why don't you audition for the Bowdoin Summer Music Festival Chorus? Um, And I didn't want to do that. It was classical music and it was with my mom. That's not cool at 14, 15. But, you know, why not? Um, So I did. And it just so happened that that summer they were doing a piece called Chichester Psalms by Leonard Bernstein, which um, is a gorgeous piece and is actually really important sort of in my musical evolution in terms of thinking about what music can do and be and sound like. Um, It blew my mind as a composition. But it also happened to have a boy solo in the piece, a child solo. And um, I was the youngest person in the choir by probably 20 years. (laughs) Um, And so I got the part, which was great. Um, And it was being directed by Jeff Malarski, who's now the director at Columbia University, but at the time was a professional um, percussionist at Philadelphia Orchestra. And then June Hahn um, was the harpist, um, who's now become a good friend. Uh, and she's with um, playing with uh, New York Phil, and she teaches at Juilliard. Anyway, my point being, I got access to these musicians that were like in another stratosphere of creativity. And because I had this solo and because the piece was quite complex, I had a number of private coaching sessions with June and Jeff. And I have such vivid memories of being in this tiny little apartment space in Brunswick on Cleveland Street and June and Jeff and I working together and feeling like I was part of art in a way I had never experienced before, that I was part of something transformative for myself and also expressive of something so much greater than the three people in this room and the little town of Brunswick. And and um, I remember the performance for that concert, opening my mouth and hearing something coming from somewhere else and not recognizing it as my own. And During that concert, I said, I want to be a part of this for the rest of my life. And I don't know what that means. At that time, I didn't know what I, whether I was going to be a singer or an arts administrator um, or a conductor. And I sort of spent the next five or six, seven years trying different things out through college. Um, But I knew this is what I wanted to do. Both of your parents are attorneys. That's right. And yet they're both very interested and involved in the arts. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, that's a fascinating blend that you have in your household and that the kind of the stock you come from. Um, 
I'm lucky, but I don't think it's that abnormal. One of the things that I love about Maine is that members of the community in all different sectors, business, medicine, law, education, are involved in all sorts of other sectors. And um, uh, my dad always said growing up that one of the things he loved about Maine is that you could really be a part of the conversation and make an impact because of our scale. And I didn't really understand what he meant by that until I lived in Chicago and Washington, D.C., and then Boston, and started trying to become a part of the conversation, and there was no room. Unless you have, you know, three PhDs and gazillion dollars, no one really wants to talk to you. Um, And in Maine, you can really make things happen. And I really value that about this community, and I value that the people in this community give back. So, um, you know, I'm now in a position where I'm doing a lot of development and fundraising, and I'm talking with people who are lawyers and CEOs and executive directors of other organizations. Um, and that was very much what my parents were. They, um, The law was their career, and they loved that work. My dad is also a professor at Bowdoin, so he, he gave me that sense of curiosity. But they were always very involved in the community, whether it be um, things in, in the health board, medicine, or um, uh, various art for art forms. So it's always been a part of my life. You didn't originally know that you wanted to do conducting. This is something that came over time. And it's not something that those of us in the, I guess, in the regular world, the the lay world, I guess we should say, um, necessarily think of when we think about music, unless we watch Mozart in the jungle and then we think about (laughs) conducting. But how did you come to this place? Um, You know, I think I came to it in the same way that other leaders sort of come to that vision. Um, Both my siblings and my brother-in-law went to business school. And so there's a lot of conversation amongst them and their friends about being a part of a larger company or organization. But then this sort of desire to be the vision, be the one making the decisions, to build something of their own. And um, I started thinking that I wanted to do singing, that I wanted to, my college application letter was about wanting to be an opera singer, but also wanting to raise chickens, and that that was going to be a dilemma, because how do you, if you're an opera singer, you have to be in a big city and you can't raise chickens, at least back then. I guess in Brooklyn, you can do it now. But um, So that's where I went in to, to college thinking. Um, but as I was doing things, I realized that the musicians and, and the singers are the executors, um, that they there is an incredible amount of talent. And frankly, I don't have the talent it takes to do those positions. But I didn't want to just execute on somebody else's vision. It started to become clear to me. I went to Williams College, and it started to become clear to me that I had a lot of ideas, some good, some bad, but that I wanted to be the one creating the vision and communicating it to other people. And that um, if I have any gifts, they are not in exceptional musical talent, although uh, I'm not bad, but they are in my ability to communicate both as a musical leader and also as a member of the community and advocating for the arts. So um, I thought I would I would uh, try that pursuit. And it has been very difficult, but so rewarding. And I, um, I'm so glad to not be in my 20s anymore. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. What does it take to become a conductor? Oh, um, there's a simple and a complicated answer to that. So the simple 
answer is that you go to grad school and then you start working your way up uh, the chain. Um, but the reality is, and one of the things that made my 20s so hard is that um, as a conductor, you are expected essentially to be an expert in music theory, music history, diction, which means you need to be able to speak French, German, and understand Italian and Latin. Um, you need to be able to play piano. You need to be able to sing. You need to understand all the instruments of the orchestra. Um, you need to be able to communicate well speaking. You need to be able to write program notes and communicate well um, uh, through writing. No one told me I needed to be good at business, but turns out that's a huge part of what I do now. And then on top of that, you need to know all the repertoire in your field and be able to wave your arms around. So my, um, I have two masters and a doctorate, and my 20s were in some ways just a constant failure, um, which I now look back on grateful for the struggle. But at the time, uh, it's hard when you are used to being a good student and um, succeeding at life and then um, not having so much to learn that there's no way that you can learn it and constantly failing, constantly being at the bottom of the food chain. And frankly, um, uh, I have had some really wonderful personal mentors in my life, but uh, music grad school is a really brutal place. I, I hear people at med school and law school talk about their experiences, and I can identify, except for there were only two of us in the class. And so it's a it's sort of that level of um, brutal critique on a much more intimate, heightened level. <laughs> so... Um, uh, so I, I have a number of graduate degrees, which were really helpful in learning the repertoire and um, some of those things, certainly music history, music theory, and moving your arms around in the repertoire. But I really feel like that's only about 50% of what I do now. Um, I think my conducting technique has been greatly influenced by my training as a ballet dancer when I was younger, and also my training as an actor, largely by Al Miller and the theater department theater project, um, you know, so much of it is about what you can communicate with your face, with your eyes, how you, um, I view myself is the um, first part of a reflecting mirror. So I am reflecting the emotions of the music and what's going on in the music in my body to the players. And then their job is to then reflect that in sound to the audience. But if what I'm showing the players is dead, then the musicians are going to be dead as well. So a lot of that is is what Al taught me. Um, and then I do a lot of business type stuff now, building organizations, marketing development, fundraising, um, PR, that kind of stuff, and which I have zero training in. Um, uh, but I am loving learning on the job. It's been so fun. Tell me what it's been like to um, be female in a largely male field hard <laughs> uh, I'm grateful to have my mother as a role model she was one of 12 women in her law school class and I grew up hearing war stories about that time and also um, her arguing in front of the appeals court um, so uh, hearing stories like hers and, and other women around me uh, was very helpful but there weren't models in my field. Um, I 
so as I mentioned, I, I sort of realized I wanted to be a conductor by the time I was 15, and that was really solidified by the time I was in 20 uh, and in college. And I went to take my first um, conducting class, and the uh, professor, I was one of three students in the class, and the professor said, um, there are no fe- good female conductors because women can't conduct. And then we spent 16 weeks together. So that was sort of my my entree. Um, and then I was very lucky to go get my, my first conducting degree um, with one of the few women teachers in the country, Sharon Paul out in Oregon, who is a magic maker. Um, and it was also a really safe environment being out in Oregon. Um, you know, in Oregon, everyone's a tattoo artist or a Pilates teacher or a meditation coach. And so the fact that I was a female conductor like no one cared and that was a great area to be making mistakes and to be learning um uh, but but I applied for a number of graduate programs, both at the master's and doctoral level, where, I mean, all sorts of ridiculous things. Like, I would be invited to the audition, and then they would have, you know, meetings or parts of the audition behind my back and not tell me about them. So there's no way that I could, you know, compete for that. Um all part of what you do in music uh, training is you go to graduate school, but you also go to all these summer programs. And um, so both my my professors in graduate school, but also in these summer programs, the number of comments I got about my body and about the way I dress, which is fairly conservative, I'm like pretty conscious of that, but I've, I've not really ever heard them make a comment about a man's body on the podium. And I've gotten pretty used to having those comments about my body um, uh, and I'm now trying to use it as an asset but but that was certainly a struggle and I think I think the hardest part was you know I said I had these mentors in other fields um, but not having people in my own field Sharon Paul my my teacher in Oregon was wonderful but her career was a really different path than what I wanted she led the San Francisco girls choir and I'm not really interested in doing children's choruses and that's what everyone assumes I want to do because I'm a woman conductor but I want to conduct symphonic choruses I want to conduct symphonies I want to conduct big oratorios and concert works. Um, you know, I love the huge requiems with with the big orc. You have 150 people on the stage. Those are my favorite. It's so exciting. Um, and that, it you hardly ever see women up in front of 150 people doing that. And so I think what was the hardest for me was trying in this already extremely competitive field where, you know, 10%, 15%, 20% are able to make their living in it. So many people drop out or leave or have to switch careers that within that space already, how was I going to be able to raise a family, keep a marriage going, not be moving every two to four years, um, lead a fulfilling life outside of my career, and be a woman in that leadership position. Um, And, you know, I'm so grateful. It was incredibly serendipitous that I got the job at Oratorio Corral. um, We've been around for 44 years and 22 years in, the director left. And it just so happened I was finishing my doctorate at the time and and was sort of looking around. And um, it also just so happened that the Downeaster started going up to Brunswick, which is where my parents live, so I could bring my newborn baby with me, drop, hand her over to grandma, 
marathon runoff to rehearsal. Um, but this has been such a rewarding community to be making really high level music. And I really push my musicians. But um for the most part, they're very comfortable with me being a woman, and they value, um, I think, what what some people consider feminine qualities, um, which I don't see as feminine qualities, but just as good leadership qualities, such as um, humility or inclusiveness or um, a willing to willingness to um, admit that I'm not perfect and that I'm uh, I'm a part of the process. Um, I, one of the things I've noticed in my other female colleagues is we tend to see each other as um, we tend to see the people we work with as collaborators rather than um, being the sort of dictator in charge and I think at the end of the day that makes for better music and a better organization so uh, it's been a challenge but we're, we're getting there we're getting there is there a glass ceiling currently yes absolutely um with no good reason, but there is. Um, of the 103 uh, arts organizations with the largest budget, I think it's something like um, 14 or 15 have women conductors. Of the big 22 that you think of, only one has a female conductor, Marin Alsop. Um, there are, you know, repeatedly there will be seasons, I mean, decades of seasons where there's no woman guest conductor um it's 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 really still not happening and uh i read an interview with Marin alsop who's the director of the baltimore symphony recently and she said that when um she's probably in her like 50s maybe and she said that when she was in grad school or in her training she she thought okay my generation is going to be the one that breaks the ceiling that changes and then 10 years 15 20 30 years later it really hasn't changed and how frustrating that is for her to see um and there's more training opportunities now just in the last few years. Um, Marin Alsop has tr started a, a fellowship for female conductors. Dallas Opera is doing this really interesting program for female conductors. Um, there's certainly more female conductors uh, applying for and sometimes in the graduate programs, but they're, they're not ending up at the top leadership positions. Um, so there's still um, a ceiling to be broken and work to be done. Tell me about Amazing Grace. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this concert. Um, so this is a concert I'm doing with Oratorio Chorale. And um, uh, so just to step back for a second. So when I had that moment at 15 where I decided I wanted to be a, a part of this amazing art, I also realized how many barriers there are to other people feeling that way. Because of my parents, because my parents fostered creativity and curiosity in a sense that the world was my oyster, and because they gave me direct entree to that art form at such a young age. I was going to Bonesor Music Festival concerts in the ergo on my mom's chest. Um, uh, it wasn't intimidating to me, but I realized how intimidating it was to other people and um, how uncool it was viewed pretty much between the ages of 10 and I don't know, 40. I don't know. I don't know when you get the bug again. So my part of my mission has always been to tear down some of what I see as unnecessary restrictions to what 
is incredible music. Um, and in both my jobs, both with Oratorio Chorale and Portland Bach Festival, a lot of my programming is geared towards that. How can we get um, audiences engaged, potentially interactive, um, multi-generations? Uh, how can we put them in unexpected settings so that you may be sitting listening quietly to music, but you're holding a micro brew in your hand or you're looking at the ocean while doing so? Um, you know, classical music was not until Mahler, until the late 19th century, that's not the way people heard music. Bach's, um, all of Bach's secular music was premiered in Zimmerman's Cafe House, which was a bar hall. And it was one of the few places that unmarried men and women could mingle and flirt and talk to each other. And it's in that setting that he, he premiered many of his works. And it's the same, you know, at Mozart's operas, everybody was drunk and they were, and it was, it was like a dance hall. Everyone's playing around. You think of Schubertian salons, Schubert, and and um, it was just a big house party that happened to also have incredible art. And so I've wanted to um, to bring back some of that socializing, celebratory, easy nature. Um, and so Amazing Grace is this concert that I my hope is through um, listening, reading, watching, and feeling the audience experiences this music and a concert experience in a very different way. So it's um, the African-American spiritual, and we're featuring um, a buddy of mine, Reggie Mobley, who uh, Reggie and I got to know each other, um, I don't know, five years ago or so. And since then, he has just skyrocketed in his career. And he is flying directly from Buckingham Palace, where he is singing for the Queen of England to Maine for this concert, which is so exciting. He'll be doing early music for her, which is what he's known for with um, Sir John Elliot Gardner, and then coming and singing, singing these spirituals um, with us. And this concert, um, one of the things that's really important to me is that we approach um, you know, Bach and Mozart and Beethoven with this record of academic um, ethos and this uh, performance practice lens. And we don't always apply that to contemporary music or to music from our own country. And so I wanted not just for myself and for the ensemble, but for the audience to put um, these African-American spirituals in context. So we've worked really closely with Judith Castleberry, who's an African-American studies professor at Bowdoin College and an expert on this kind of music and the um the concert uh follows the the evolution of the spiritual in america so starting um in the plantations and the way uh it would have been sung in a folk style or congregational singing what you sort of think of as um uh, call and response, but then improvised harmonization underneath that. And so to create the context around what that music, where that music was coming from, we're doing a number of readings from by Frederick Douglass. Um, and then we move into the sort of Fisk singers generation where this music was now being concertized, thought of as a performance opportunity. And um, W.E.B. Du Bois was um, at Fisk University while this was going on. So we have some writings by him. We go through Emancipation and then towards um, uh, the 20th century and the civil rights ending with um, the way that the tune Amazing Grace was used uh, during the civil rights and Over My Head was used during civil rights. So um, there's reading, there's incredible art by Daniel 
Minter and Ashley Bryan, who are main artists who've been on your show. Um, Judith is reading. Uh, Oratorio Corral is singing. Reggie is making people weep in their seats. Um, and music is coming from all sides. There's a lot of movement in this concert. So it looks absolutely nothing like what you're probably expecting. <laughs> well, with your very busy schedule, I really appreciate your coming in and talking with me Thank today. you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Emily Isaacson, who serves as the Artistic Director of the Oratorio Chorale and the Main Chamber Ensemble. Thank you so much. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Today it is my pleasure to have with me Dr. Mary Pluff, who is a licensed psychologist and writer. Her memoir, I Know It in My Heart, Walking Through Grief with a Child, is coming out in May 2017, and she is currently working on a book of essays on listening. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. I, I don't often... Um, think about the the art of listening. I'm sure as someone, how long have you been in practice now? Um, about 35 years. So you probably have some experience with that. I do. I do. Um, and um, the book is a, a chance to kind of peel back a little bit the things that were most powerful for me to hear as a child and an adolescent. And then it pulls back the screen a little bit in therapy and talks about how we listen and to what and what healing is about in terms of both silence and listening because I think they both weave together in good clinical practice. So give us just a taste because that's not the book we're going to talk about today no. but I'm very excited to, to read it in the future. So, <laughs> Well uh, uh, I, I don't I didn't bring any piece of that book with me but um, I did an essay there's actually the, the reason that this book is now on listening is that when I got an agent for this book she said I need to sell writers, not just books. What else do you write? And at the time, I had had one essay published, and it was a, this, I believe, essay on the power of silence. And it talks about all the different silences that I know in a therapy office, the silence of having said just the right word, the silence that follows somebody telling something they've never said before. So it's that kind of listening that I'm exploring in the book. You had to do a fair <clears throat> amount of listening yourself in this situation that you've just written about, your sister dying of breast cancer at a relatively young age, and you're being really pulled into um, the helping raise her small child. But it was a very different kind of listening for you. Yes, it was a very different kind of listening for me. And, and just to shift that just a little, Martha didn't die of breast cancer. She was uh, completely free of cancer at the time she went into this research project, which was supposed to be um, a last treatment that might extend her life. It was unknown and uncertain. She died of complications, unexpected complications of that treatment. So there's a, a slightly different feel to that. We had no expectation that she um, was going to die, or no expectation that anything except a long and full life was ahead of her. So. Well, and that is, you're right, that's a that's a big distinction because I believe it was a bone marrow transplant. It was a bone marrow transplant research program at John Hopkins, which also had 
a second stage to it. It was a phase two study to see whether people with her particular tumor would have a longer uh, uh, lifespan outcome if after they were freed entirely of tumor by chemo and radiation, they also did this further step. And at the time, there, there seemed to be research behind doing this, but then subsequent to that, it was learned that the researcher who was doing this wasn't being forthcoming with his information. Yes. So that's especially tragic, really. It was especially tragic. It was a year, exactly a year after her death, that the results of the National Association found that no one here in this country or in Europe could duplicate the results of the South African studies that had sounded so promising and on which all of these programs in our country were based. Um, so following that, they went to South Africa and looked at those studies and found them to be falsified. So how does one work through, I'm just thinking if this were me and my sister, the anger over that and simultaneously the grief over the loss of a, a sister and simultaneously trying to help with the grief of a child. That's so many different things that you're trying to balance. It's a great question because I don't think we balance everything all at once. I think we prioritize. I certainly did. Um, Leah Marie was my first priority and um, she was supposed to be, be with me for three weeks when she came. And so, um, that that was my first priority. Um, the way when you read the book, um, the story about the the research, I put in an epilogue, and there were a lot of people who said to me, "No, no, no, you have to weave that into the story." And I said, "It's dishonest because the truth is, I didn't weave it into my story. I knew it." but I really walled it off. I could not allow my feelings about that to be primary or even to take up a lot of energy. I had three children, I had a mother who had lost her daughter, and I had a three-year-old whose husband was asking me, please help me raise this child and help her understand that her mother's gone. So I, I think for a long, long time I just, I said, okay, that's the bad news, that's the horrible news, but that's that's, that's something I can do nothing about. Um, so I sort of walled that off. And one of, the, one of the things that was hardest for me in writing this story as a psychologist is that I came to believe after a lot of push that it had to be my story. It was originally just Leah Marie's story and I was not going to be in it at all except as a narrator. Um, but once I was convinced that that was the way to write it, then I needed to write it honestly. And really the only way to talk about that was to talk about how I had left that out, known it and said, don't go there. I have other things that need every bit of attention that I can give. This story is specifically about helping a child through grief. And it's written as your story and as Leah Marie's story and somewhat as your family's story as well, but it's not a how-to, and no. yet you still provide insights that may be useful for people who are looking for a way to deal with this. 
why did you decide to go in the direction you did? Well, that's a that's a great question because um, first and foremost, um, when I thought about writing it at all, it was when um, Herb, my brother-in-law, remarried, and I had written things just to survive and to document and to help myself think through what he and I were trying to do with Leah Marie. But I had never intended to use them except for for us. Um, I shared them with his new wife and family and I could see how they really resonated to living her experience, not just being told about it. And that's the first time that I I felt like, okay, maybe this would have a life outside of our family. Um, and the other piece of this, Lisa, is that when I was in my deepest pain, all my textbooks, all my self-help books, all my how-to books were useless to me. I wanted only to resonate with somebody who was grieving as I was. And those were the books I found were helpful. And when I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's not a lot different from therapy. You you don't sit there and give people statistics and numbers and instructions. You take them to a place of feeling something about themselves, um, and you use story and metaphor um, to resonate with that feeling, because I believe we learn best with story. And so it was always in my mind that it would not be a self-help book. If I wrote it at all, it would have to be a memoir, and people would take from it what was relevant to their experience and their situation. Would you read to us a passage from your book? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, This is a piece that occurred the first night I went to John Hopkins, went to the hospital and saw my sister who is at that point unconscious on a vent in the uh, in the intensive care unit of the bone marrow transplant it was a pretty horrific scene, and um, here we took Leah Marie up to the hospital, and she chose not to go into the room that night. I didn't sleep much that night. I wasn't upset with Leah Marie's choice not to see her mother. Herb and I were both relieved she was so clear. It gave us more time to think. We both knew this could not be Leah Marie's decision. If Martha died, it would be a choice we would have to live with for a lifetime. And no three-year-old could understand the implications of that. What kept me up was the concept of death, object constancy, object permanence, Piagetian experiments with toddlers invaded my dreams that night. Cognitive development in toddlers and young children, I thought when I awoke. You need to read up on this. But Lee Marie did not give me the chance. The next morning when Herb left for the hospital, she pulled me into the living room. Play Ken and Barbie with me, she asked, and I cringed, not my strong suit. I was not a fan of these precocious dolls for young children. But now was not the time to worry about the politics of child rearing. She led me over to a big dollhouse set up in the corner of the living room. It was an older play schoolhouse designed for small figures, but that didn't seem to matter. I sat on the floor. She picked up the two dolls from a pile of toys in the corner. Okay, Barbie and Ken are going dancing, she announced. She grabbed the figures rather roughly, stuffed them in a blue plastic convertible. She didn't bother to change Barbie's clothes, though she was in pants and a casual top. 
Whoosh! Leah Marie shot the car across the room. She got up, retrieved the car, and came back to the house. Now they come home and go to bed. She grabbed the car and removed the dolls, leaving Ken unceremoniously on the floor and laying Barbie across the tiny bed, too small for the oversized figure. I had not yet said a word. And in the night, she dies, Leah Marie offered tentatively, articulating slowly. But then she wakes up in the morning, right? Suddenly, I realized where this was going. Yes, love, toys are pretend so they can do that. And people too, she insisted. No, Leah Marie, not people. Why not people? People are not pretend. So if mama dies, she can come back to life again too. No, love, no, she can't. I don't want to play this anymore, she said firmly and walked away. That must have been quite something to be simultaneously uh, in your psychologist brain and understanding that she was at a very, Leah Marie was at a very specific stage of development that you needed to be aware of, but also being the sister of a woman who is dying. Yeah. It was a very powerful moment. It's it, There are many of those in the book, times when people say, how can you remember? And I'd say, how would you forget? You know, this was the first, we had not sat her down. We were not at a place of thinking that she was going to die, only that her condition was really very, very serious. But at that point, uh, we were we were still hopeful, so we hadn't used that word. And for Leah Marie to go there, she was a very verbal, uh, almost four-year-old, and um, it did take me by surprise that she went there instantly. Um, I was grateful that I had some play therapy training because <laughs> I could sort of slide into that um, awareness and that headspace, um, which kept it a little less emotional for me. Because I, I could tell when she was saying, okay, I need to process something with you. I need to figure out something with you versus when I just need to play with you and be with you. There's a di there was a different tone to it. Um, so, You have, obviously, the good fortune to have had this training. Yes. And um, you say play therapy, but also developmental stages and mm -hmm. Most people don't. Most people who are in this situation uh, kind of flying by the seat of their pants, really. How were you able to use what you knew to help Leah Marie at this very specific three, almost four-year-old developmental stage? No, I think it was automatic pilot. I, I don't, um, it was, she was so um, attached to me at that time and um, what we had thought were three weeks because of delays and things turned into four months. So she'd actually been with my family and I'd been playing substitute mother for a while. So she really looked to me for answers to everything. And um, I think at that moment it was the most constructive, functional thing I could do and that was good for me. Um, I had no desire to run away from it. I just wanted to do the best I could to sort of give her the support that she needed. And that was my healing, I think. I, I don't, 
um, I, I, I think when you can do something, um, well, you've been in medicine, you know when you can do something to help, you put your emotions aside for the moment and you do that because that's the best thing for both you and the patient. So um, that's really how it felt at the time. Okay, now I can do something for her. Do children and adults grieve differently? I think they do. Um, I think they do. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the things I hope that this book will help people understand. Um, you know, knowing is a process for children, especially for young children, but even older children. The time of a loss determines how much they can take in and what level of abstract conceptualization about things like permanence and forever. Um, you know, no matter how many times you explain to a three or a four-year-old that um, death is permanent, they will still ask you, as Leah Marie asked her dad, can we go to the train station? Mommy used to get off the train and maybe she still will. And that sense of the inability to have the constructs that they need. And so every developmental stage, they rework what death means. Um, and they rework it both in terms of their understanding of what they've lost and what they will lose. Um, but they also rework it in, what it in terms of what it means to them because they, um, at four, you really can't imagine what you will be like at 14 or at 44. And so um, uh, losing someone and knowing what that really means is a process that evolves through childhood. Um, I think for adults, we know. We know the moment it happens that it's horrific. Our process is in titrating our awareness to that and, and regulating our feelings about it and taking it step by step. But it's not that we don't understand it. It's, it's that we have to accommodate to it and figure out how we're going to make a life around it. Um, but when you're three, um, you, your fragments of who this person is in your mind are still being developed. Um, so at four and five, Leah Marie had few memories of the real mother, but she knew she was missing mothering, and that was her grief then. How did your own children work with this process? I know that your youngest, Margaret, was also relatively young herself. She was, yeah. My children were uh, 10, 15, and 20, actually, when Leah Marie came to live with us. And those are very different stages, too. The 20-year-old was often in college. Um, and uh, the 15-year-old was in high school and very much involved in athletics and music and handled this grief, I think, like many adolescents do, by diving headfirst into his own life, which was, frankly, a joy for all of us, too. Um, but. Margaret, I think, at 10, um, was in a difficult, more difficult position because she had sort of one foot in childhood and one foot in young adolescence. Um, and she was um, very aware of how big a separation this was for her little cousin. And she felt for her. She would say, I don't know how she can be away from her mom. I couldn't be away from you. And, so she, she felt with, she felt sort of an empathy for this 
um, even more than in a sense was fair because Liam Reed did not really have a sense of time. She thought she was just here for a three-week adventure and she did not have a sense of the seriousness of her mother's um, treatment even after the ARDS hit, um, whereas Margaret did. And so she, she bonded with her really um, in an emotional way um, because of the stage she was at developmentally. Through this time, you continued to um, do your work as I a psychologist. <laughs> so you were still seeing patients while you were helping everybody else, and hopefully helping yourself. Yes, yeah. Work through this process. Yeah. Well, I had to take a great deal of time when, in the month that she was at Johns Hopkins, I was back and forth a lot. So after her death, I I really couldn't afford to take another two or three months for grieving. And I, I also, I know myself fairly well, and I knew that um, just uh, not doing my work, my work was my survival. And I could walk up to my office, and I didn't work 40 hours a week, and I, I really, um, I took what I called grieving days, then when I had absolutely nothing on my schedule except whatever my heart and soul needed to do. But I also tried to weave in what um, what I'm here to do, which is to do my job, because that also gave me a sense that life would go on. That was very helpful for grieving, because um, we all know how awful it feels, but what we what we need to know is that we can get through it. And sometimes being able to do small pieces of your life, in spite of how awful you feel, um, is is the affirmation you need that you will get through this and life will get better. So, I was struck by. Um one thing that you said about your husband, who also is a professional working outside the home as an attorney, and it was something like it was he had made it his responsibility to make sure that you had the space, kind of literally and figuratively, to help provide care for people who needed it. And I thought that was so wise because I know that when you are in the field of working one-on-one -on -one with human beings, it's a very intense situation. So him, for him to want to kind of create that space for you, um, I think speaks volumes of his understanding of what you do and also of your relationship. Yeah, none of this would have, none of this would be real without him. And as I said, in the, it, it is not a joke, but it was always a joke between us that he would say to me, my job is to keep you sane so you can go up to your office and do the same for others. But boy, if those words um, had truth in them, they were proven both in going through this and also in the writing of this, because the writing was sort of reliving all of this, especially so many years later when I had to dig through so much material just to create a story, an arc that um, made sense, so. Well, that is also interesting because how, how old is Leah Marie now? She just graduated from college uh, in June. Uh, so that's a long, long time. That's yes. a long period of space in which you've needed to grieve and process and write and rework and and it's just evidence that this type of thing doesn't happen overnight. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. I, I, on the other hand, I think um, 
I don't think it's a, con a, a as continuous a process of that. Um, as I said, I didn't think about writing the book until she was 10 when her father remarried. I asked her when she was 15, and um, the and I felt like even then it would was um, a, r a little risky thing to do. My first and foremost um, concern was that it wouldn't disrupt her life. Um, and it took another five years with all the drafts and with the fact that I wasn't a writer to start with and had to go out there and learn how to do things. Um, so she was 20 by the time she actually read it start to finish. And that felt right to me because I think she really was able then as a young adult to reprocess what, some of which was some material that was very new to her and, um, and very emotional. Um, but I, you know, there, there certainly were years in there in which I would say we were all in a good place. And then the question came, does, do I want to write this book? Is this what I'm going to do with this life experience? Or am I going to share it or am I going to keep it to myself? <laughs> so what was the turning point? Um, to, to write the book? I, I honestly think the, um, the turning point was seeing how useful it was to, um, to Herb and his new wife who became Leah Marie's adoptive mother. A um, couple years after that, I went to a conference, and, and um, the uh, I said, I'm going to write this story, and it's going to be called Leah Marie's story. And they said, was this your sister? And I said, yeah. And they said, it can't be Leah Marie's story. It's got to be your story of grief and um, how you tried to care for her through that. And that was sort of a shocking idea. I'm the psychologist who sits behind the desk, behind the, you know, and so I put it in my bottom drawer for three years. And, but I had fallen in love with writing. And a good friend said to me about 2009, three years later, you're not going to write anything unless you get that book out of your head. So she said, um, why don't you do what they're saying, put pieces together, and submit it to um, a totally objective author and say, does this have any legs outside the family? Is this something you should just keep together, or could it be a book? And I was lucky enough to have that person be Suzanne Strempik-Shea, who w believed in it from the minute she saw it, and kept saying, you have to write this book, and you have to write it this way. So I think that was wonderful, to have writers who felt that it would be a contribution. Center for Grieving Children, when they saw the first drafts of it, was very supportive as well. So I'm very fortunate that people said, you know, this is this may do some good in the world, and that felt like what my sister would have wanted, because she was she was a rebel, she was a fighter, she <laughs> um, she was in the '70s the Irish Catholic, the red-haired Irish Catholic girl who went to Black Panther meetings at night. She was a she <laughs> she was a rebel, so I know she would have said, uh, do something with this besides just keeping it to yourself. So feels good to be there. Well, I am glad that you wrote it. I enjoyed reading it. I learned something about children and grieving. I learned something about you, and I've known you for many years. <laughs> so it was really wonderful to be able to um, have that, I guess, that window open into another, again, human being. And I appreciate your being here. Well, thank you today. for inviting me. I, I'm excited to see it finally 
come out in the light of day and to hear people's reactions to it and to share it. I've been speaking with Dr. Mary Pluff, who is a licensed psychologist and writer. Her memoir, I Know It in My Heart, Walking Through Grief with a Child, will be here with us May 2017. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 300, From the Heart. Our guests have included Dr. Emily Isaacson and Dr. Mary Pluff. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love, Maine Radio photos on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our From the Heart Show, show number 300. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day for each of the past 300 episodes. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music by Spencer Aldi. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a track from Spencer Albee's new album, Relentlessly Yours in stores and online now at spenceralby.com. But in a couple days they'll open